As we go through the story of Abram here, uh, as we start in Genesis chapter 11, the verse of Gen- uh, the verse, uh, last few verses of that and move to chapter 12, and this week will be uh, in Genesis 14, if you want to turn there in your Bible. But we're looking at the story of Abram. Abram becomes Abraham. Uh, he is the father of the Jewish or Hebrew nation. God calls him out, and we looked at the first week at that calling. And how God called a man who didn't really know him. Uh, His father did not worship uh, creator God, the God of the Bible. Um, Abram's father was polytheistic. He worshipped the created things rather than the creator. And yet Abram was called out and he responded. And I think it's important for us to note that it's because of Abram's obedience that you and I sit here today and are part of this church. Because it is the movement of the church, the movement of Jesus was begun by the Messiah right? Jesus the Messiah who came through the line and lineage of David, yes, but uh, beginning with Abram. And so it's because of his faith, really in part, that we're here. And so I want to encourage you with that and remind us that the steps of faith that you take in your life, when you respond to God, um, you have no idea uh, the generations that that will affect and impact. And so I want to encourage you in that. But the title of this series is called Leave Your Native Country because that's what God called Abram to do. Uh, get up and leave your native country. Leave the land that you're familiar with. And we've been following his story as we've moved through how he left his native country and he moved to the land of Canaan as a response to God's call. When he got there, God said, hey, this is the place. This is the place I'm going to give you to your descendants. I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than the sand and the sea and the stars in the sky. And I'm going to bless the world through you. And Abram got to Canaan, and he worshipped God there, and then a famine hit. And he uh, went down to Egypt. When he got to Egypt, he lied about his wife Sarai, saying she was his sister because he was concerned for his life. God reprimanded him there, used uh, Pharaoh to do it, reprimanded him for that lie and for that uh, lack of faith. And God's teaching Abram to believe in him and to trust him. He's growing him. And so Abram gets back to Canaan. Uh, Pharaoh says, hey, you got to get out of here. Um, and so he leaves with all of his family, all of his possessions, his growing tribe. And he gets back to the land of Canaan. He worships God again. And there's a problem that arises. We looked at last week uh, in that there's not enough provision to uh, provide for both Lot's growing family and tribe and Abram's. And so there's, a, there's disputes that arise between their uh, employees as they're trying to take care of the livestock and the animals that they, that they have um, under their care. And so uh, Abram grabs the situation, he handles it very differently, and he allows God to work in it. And he says, uh, Lot, listen, um, this land isn't enough for both of us, you choose where you want to go. And Lot chose to move away from Abram, out of the land of Canaan, uh, into the territory that was occupied by, the Bible says, the people that were wicked. And they were not, uh, they had no uh, allegiance or connection to God. And in fact, their behavior was exact in opposition to God and was an abomination to God. And so Lot moved into that territory. It's called Sodom. And he, uh, he resided there. And so this week, we continue the story in verse 14 with the title of the message, Following God to the Rescue. Um, we're, we're talking about following God here, obviously. And following God to the rescue, we're going to see today a story of rescue. And we're going to see how we're called to be a part of rescue. But I find it interesting as we get started that God's pursuit of us, for many of us, when we think of God pursuing us, we think of the fact that we're in trouble. God's coming after us to discipline us, right? And if God wants to meet with me or he, want, he has, you know, 
I hear God wants a meeting with me. You know what I mean? Like, hey, the boss wants to meet with you. And then we think, I'm in trouble. What I do wrong? And because we kind of live with that, right? Because um, there's not a day goes by <laughs> when you or I don't do something wrong. We, we sin in some way. We struggle with that. And so we know uh, we could be in trouble. And, but we think of God's pursuit of us in that way. And yet the truth is God's pursuit of us is to grow us, right? It is to save us. And uh, um, back in 19, what was it, 1981, I think, um, there's a story told of... Uh, a car theft. Uh, it actually made the news in Minnesota. It was a car that was stolen out in California. And so this little uh, VW bug had been stolen. The guy had taken off and he was driving across the country. And the reason it made the news in Minnesota is because the police had become very concerned about this, uh, this theft. And they were putting bulletins out all over the country trying to find this guy. And the reason is because the owner of the vehicle had told the police that he had a, a box of crackers on the front seat of the vehicle. But it wasn't just any box of crackers. They were laced with poison because he was going to use them as rat bait, right? And poison that kills rats. And so all of a sudden, a concern about getting a vehicle backed turned into a concern to find this guy to save his life, right? And so uh, the truth is that oftentimes we don't understand that God is pursuing us because he loves us. He cares about us. He wants to see us uh, walking with him. And yeah, sometimes that does mean correction, but when he moves to rescue us, it's because he cares. And so uh, we're going to continue the story of Abram, uh, pick that up in 14, and look at this story this week. Hey, as we get started, I just wanted to share something, kind of deal with something, a little bit of um, just uh, family business, if you will. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we're recognizing, and I want to recognize, is that um, given the situation we're in with the COVID-19, I call it the plague, just being a little sarcastic, but it's, it's a difficult season that we've been in. And it's almost, we're coming up on a year. Been 11 months, I think, uh, uh, the end of January here. And so I recognize that this has caused all of us in some way to make some changes in our life, make some adjustments. Some of those adjustments uh, should be temporary, okay, and in that they don't become permanent, right? And yet I see, and we're seeing a growing trend where some of those adjustments are kind of becoming permanent. And one of those regards just our relationship to church. And so um, nationally, uh, what we're seeing is a movement away from church attendance, kind of understandable in a sense, but a movement to use an online, right, and, and, and going to church online. And listen, I'm thankful that we have had an incredible online church experience. It was ready to go. Uh, uh, Ken, our worship director, did a lot of work on that. Renata's a part of it. There's a whole team. Uh, folks shooting the, with the cameras here. You see them every week. That really made us prepared for this uh, situation where we couldn't always be at church. And some people need to stay away uh, for health reasons and, and legitimate reasons. And so I'm thankful for it. But here's the problem. Uh, the problem is it's so good. That, that there's a tendency, there's a temptation to move towards just going to church online, right? And so I just want to encourage you guys, I want to share with you and, and with uh, those that call this church home and come to, come to church here that going to church online is fine as a supplement, but it is not going to sustain you. It is not meant to sustain you. The Word of God teaches us that we need to be together. We need to be with each other in the same room. And some of that, to be honest with you, is, is understandable because God made us for relationship. You know, emotionally and, and uh, psychologically and spiritually, we need to see other people's faces and interact with them and hear their voices, and we draw encouragement from that. It's one of the ways in which we grow as Christians. But there's also a part, and I'll tell you it's a little mysterious to me, but, uh, or, or it's just a mystery a bit, 
is that there's a supernatural thing that happens in this room when we gather together and we worship together. And it's powerful. And it, church is not the same if you're not here. And I know I'm talking to a group of people that are here today, so, but, but folks watching online. But it, it's not the same if you're not here. And it is different. And it's encouraging to all of us, me included. But, it, but we draw encouragement from that. And we just need it. And so uh, seeing a trend, I just wanted to say something out of uh, a heart of concern and love for all of you and for all the people that watch online. I'm not trying to push anybody away. Uh, uh, certainly not my heart. My heart is to say, listen, church online is a supplement. You don't live on supplements, right? We need real food and real nourishment. And part of that is coming to church. And so uh, a strong growing faith as a Christian is to say, I need to be in church. And at some point, and I know we're, we're moving, hopefully, a little bit further past this all the time, at least in our area. The cases are going down, and, and the number of people in the hospital and stuff, it's, it's going the right direction. We're thankful. But I just want to encourage you, and this is my big concern and my big question with this. Have you resumed and engaged every other part of your life except church? And, and I'm seeing that, and I'm hearing people say, hey, it's socially acceptable just to go to church online. That's okay now. And, and so I just want to say, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not okay. That's not enough. And so don't allow that thought and that uh, don't accept that as a position. It's fine if you have to do it. I know we have some people that need to stay home still, and, and that's okay. But, uh, but there's some that have moved to a place of just going, it's a little bit easier. Uh, it's hard to get everybody ready and get to church. You know, I get that. But it's important. There's a reason. And so let me just pray for us. I know, I know it's a tough issue, but um, just trying to encourage you in the right direction. God, I want to pray for us as a church. First of all, I want to pray for those, Father, who just are not able to make it to church ever for health reasons and for um, uh, just the stage in life they're in. God, I want to lift them up to you. We love them. You love them. And Father, they're a part of this church even though they're not able to be here physically. And I thank you for them. And I pray that you would bring some encouragement to their hearts and their minds and that their sense of connection with us as a church would be strong. Father, for those who need to stay away still because of uh, being in a high-risk category, being in a situation where they need to still uh, be cautious, I pray for them as well. For some, it's growing on to be in a year that they haven't been able to be in church. And so I just pray for them as well, Father, that you'd bring comfort to them and strength and nourishment to them. Father, for those that are maybe have fallen into a pattern of just uh, staying home, watching on TV and stuff, just because it's a little easier, maybe it's convenient, God, I just pray for them, uh, for a, a, just taking a moment to reconsider how important it is that church is a part of their life. This isn't really an optional thing. God, you've called us to it. It's part of walking with you. And so I just pray for us, for our community, our region, Father, that we would not follow the national trend but that we would uh, uh, keep our commitment and stay strong in our faith. And so I pray that over us as a church and over our region. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today when we pick up the story, um, Abram, Lot, his nephew, we see kind of a military uh, war drama. It's kind of like uh, Braveheart or 300 or whatever your favorite movie is. It's kind of what's going on here. Um, we have uh, some kings. We have a power struggle in this region. And, uh, and uh, first of all, there's kings that Lot has connected himself to. There's the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's three other kings that you're not going to recognize uh, anything about them. And I'm going to have a tough time pronouncing them. So I'm just going to say, there's five kings in this region uh, that have lived under the subjugation um, 
uh, of one particular king, and he has uh, kind of been uh, ruling things. He has the power in the region, and his name, as best I can say it, is Kedorlamer. Kedorlamer, King Kedorlamer, and he is a king of power in this region. He has the largest military force. He controls the most area. He uh, has been subjugating these five kings, two of whom are kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's been subjugating them to himself. So he's been forcing them to pay a tribute every year. Now, this was common in these days. Uh, uh, Warring factions would go on raiding parties. They would raid another people group, steal from them. They would try to acquire uh, their, their wealth and provision. And so this was a constant condition at this time in the world. And uh, honestly, it hasn't been that long that we've been out of that uh, type of, uh, of existence as a human race. And so here are these five kings have been living under this. They've been paying tribute every year to Kedorlamer. And so... Uh, for 12 years they do this. And as this, uh, as this account is relayed to us, the 13th year comes and they refuse to pay. They're tired of doing it. They're tired of making these payments. And they're saying, look, uh, we think we've gotten powerful enough, strong enough to resist. We're going to rebel against this. It's kind of like taxation without representation, right? We know what that's like in this country. And so they, they get tired of it. They're like, we're not going to do it anymore. Well, Kedorlamer obviously has to do something about it. So he gets... His allies, he has three kings that, that um, are allies with him. He raises and musters the army, uh, this, uh, this um, raiding force, and they go out uh, and move from the east. They're headed down to the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, probably at the base of that, the southern end of it is where we think those cities were. And so he moves out. Well, he sweeps the entire region. He comes into the region with his military force. They're so strong, and he's not going to waste this trip, okay? And so he sweeps the region, and he subjugates more people uh, under his authority. He defeats more, like the entire region. He takes over. And so you see this force that's powerful and strong moving through the region, conquering everybody. He, he then uh, points his, uh, his, his force and his uh, ire at these kings who have rebelled against him. And he heads down to uh, wage war with them. He enters uh, the, the fray, the, the engagement begins, and they very easily gain the victory. I mean, it's not even difficult. In fact, the Bible tells us that the region that they're fighting in, even the, uh, even the area itself, works against these kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, these rebellious kings. Uh, it, it, the Bible tells us there's tar pits in this area. And the kings, uh, the five rebellious kings and their troops, fall. some of them fall into the tar pits. The rest of them running so fast, they're trying to get away, uh, scared to death for their lives. They run to the mountains and escape. And so this is the nature of the story. Then Kedorlamer and his forces head to Sodom and Gomorrah to uh, ransack the city and to take the wealth. And this would involve, um, this would even involve taking some of the women, some of the, uh, uh, the provisions, the wealth, the animals, whatever they had. And so they do this and they head off um, having gained the victory. And the reason that we know about the story is because of what happens next. Because this is a power struggle, happens in the Middle East, and honestly there's a lot of these over the course of time and, and not a lot of them are in the Bible. But this one is in the Bible because this particular skirmish issue involves one of our characters, and that is it involves Lot. Because Lot has made his home in Sodom. He lives in Sodom, and he uh, lives under the authority of, um, of the king of Sodom, and he has connected his life to these individuals and to this region. And so this, um, this force, Kedorlamer and his forces come in, and they see Lot, and he looks the same as everybody else. And so they take him captive as well, and all of his possessions. 
See, Lot gets caught up in a conflict because of his associations. Genesis 14 is where we're at. I'm going to start reading in verse 11 if you want to follow along. The victorious invaders then plunder Sodom and Gomorrah and head for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom, and carried off everything he owned. As we looked at last week, Lot has chosen to make his home uh, to connect with, associate, associate with people who are far from God, who are, uh, who are wicked, as the Bible calls them, in opposition to God, meaning their practices are an abomination to God. And Lot has chosen to make his home there. When Lot got into this area, he did not identify himself as someone different. He did not build an altar, as Abram did. Abram built altars in Canaan, right, to publicly acknowledge to all those there that he worshipped the one true God. Lot did not do that. He didn't do anything to set himself apart from the people in this region. In fact, when this raiding force comes through, he looks like the rest of them. And so he's included. He gets wrapped up in this because of his association with the world around him. Listen, we're called to live in the world. And the world that we live in is not for God. It's not uh, following God. It's not an obedience to God. In fact, the Bible says it's an enemy of God's. We are called and we live in that world. We're not called to get out of it. We're not called to, to uh, leave it, right? But we're called to be different as we live in this world. We are not to be like the world around us. We are to separate ourselves, not physically in the sense of leaving it, right? Moving out and getting away from everybody and, and just cloistering together. That's not what we're called to do, as I see in Scripture. We're called to be in the world. But we're called to be separate and different and distinct. And our posture towards the world around us, how we associate makes all the difference. Uh, the book of Psalms, uh, uh, a collection of writings, a lot of them by King David. The first Psalm addresses this. What is your orientation to the people around you, to the world you live in? The people that don't love God and are not following him. What is your relation to them? How do you associate with them? Psalm 1 says it this way. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the, way of sin, uh, in, the, in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. It goes on to say that person's life will flourish. Because they're not walking in step with the wicked, they're not standing in the way that sinners take, and they're not sitting in the company of mockers. To walk to stand and to sit reflect a progression of relationship, a progression of association. Uh, walking is one form of being with people. Standing is a little more permanent and sitting is, is final. And so the writer says, listen, if you have this association, this orientation to the world around you and to people that aren't following God, you're going to step into trouble. You're not going to be in the place that God wants you. Jesus, in fact, as I said, calls us to be in the world but not of the world. We're called to be separate from the world that we live in. We are called to be rescuers and to reach the world. We're going to look at this story of rescue today and we're going to see that we're called into this, uh, into this business of rescuing. But in order to rescue the people around us who are trapped in a situation that is threatening and dangerous, we must be different. We first have to separate ourselves um, spiritually speaking, from the standpoint of how we live our lives. 
We cannot reach the world if we haven't been saved ourselves, if we haven't been uh, transformed, if we're not different. John 17, Jesus' words, he says this in verses 14 through 19. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. We see in here this word sanctify. It, it uh, is part of a larger world, uh, word called sanctification. When we look at salvation, there's three aspects to salvation. The first is justification. We uh, put our faith in Jesus, in the work of Jesus on the cross, his death on the cross covering our sin. We put our faith in that when we believe that his death his, was sacrificed enough to pay for my sin. I'm justified. The Bible says it is by faith alone that we're justified or made right with God. It's a legal term. I move from being guilty to being clean, right? And, and my guilt is taken away. And my payment for my sin is, is covered. And that's what happens when I put my faith in what Jesus did for me. But the next piece of salvation or the next uh, aspect of salvation is called sanctification. It is the process, it represents the process of becoming holy, of being set apart. The Bible says that we are sanctified, okay? So we are set apart, but it's also a process of becoming obedient to that holy life that God's calling us to. And then lastly is glorification. Glorification is talked about in um, 1 Corinthians 15, where uh, what Paul talks about there, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that our bodies are going to be transformed and changed. This body is subject to sin and corruption. It's not going to last. And even if I'm alive when Jesus returns, this body is not going to be the body I spend eternity in. I will have a new body. And so that is glorification. That's the promise, right? That's another aspect of salvation. And so these, these different com- the aspects of salvation we must understand. To do one, to say, listen, I trust in Jesus. I put my faith in him, and I'm good. And now I'm going to keep living the way I want to, <laughs> is, is to disavow and not understand what salvation is. Because salvation involves all of these. I mean, are you going to say, listen, yeah, I want to be justified. I want to be right with God, and then I want to spend eternity with him, but I don't want to worry about what I do in the meantime, in the in-between. No, like that's sanctification. And, and this is the process. Lot put himself in association with people that influenced him away from God. This is going to cost him. It's going to cause problems. See, as, as followers of Jesus, our attitude towards sin has got to change. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher um, in, uh, in uh, England, Years ago said this, if I had a brother who'd been murdered, what would you think of me if I daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? If I was friends with the murderer of my brother, what would you think? Surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Listen, I know that we have a sin nature that we battle with. We're drawn to sin. It's our native language, as I talked about the first week. Leaving our native country is to leave sin. 
that's who we are and it's, how we're it's what we're born into and it's what we speak. And yet God says, listen, you're different. I need you to call out, I'm calling you out to follow me and to live a different life and to live a different way. And that is to change our orientation to what is good and what we want to do and what we're drawn towards. We've got to be transformed. What's the evidence of sanctification, that it's happening in your life? Well, let's say uh, you, you wake up tomorrow and it's tax season and you realize, listen, I've been cheating on my taxes for the last 10 years. I need to stop. God does not want me to live that way. I need to be honest in my dealings. And so you decide this year to not do that. See, that's a sign that sanctification is happening, right? Um, what about if you, uh, if you wake up... Um, and you realize, listen, I've not been treating my body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. I've been putting things into it that are wrong, that are, that are uh, damaging or hurting or whatever. I've not been treating it like God wants me to. I'm going to change. This year is going to be different. And you begin to make those changes. That's a sign that sanctification is happening. What if you wake up and say, listen, I've been mishandling and viewing sex wrong. I've been using pornography or I've been reading um, romance novels and I've been handling this wrong. I'm going to change. And you wake up and go, listen, i got to stop doing that. I'm going to move in a different direction, obedience to God. And I'm not going to view that anymore. I'm not going to read that stuff anymore. I'm going to get my, uh, my view and orientation to sex changed to God's. That's a sign that sanctification is happening. What if you go, listen, I've had a grudge against a person for a long time. I've been holding a grievance, and I got a reason to do that. What they did to me was wrong, and I've been treated unjustly. But God calls me to forgive. <laughs> Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us. So I know it's what God's called me to do. I'm going to choose today to let go of that, to set that grievance down, and I'm going to walk in forgiveness. That's a sign that sanctification is happening in our lives. Lot suffers because of his proximity to and his affiliation with godless people. He has not been able to protect himself when, these, uh, when this king comes through and this coalition. He can't protect himself. He's not large enough. And so he's overcome. He's caught up in a conflict that these kings are having. Really not his conflict, but he's got himself into it because of his proximity with them, his association with them. But fortunately for Lot, God's not given up on him. See, Abram gets word of Lot's troubles. Remember his uncle, Abram, who he left, who he moved away from. I don't need him anymore. I can make it on my own, right? And so uh, Abram gets word of the trouble that Lot is in. Let's continue reading Genesis 14 and verse 13. But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram, the Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove belonging to the Mamre, the Amorite. Mamre and his relatives... Eshkol and Anur were Abram's allies. By God's grace, uh, by God's grace, one of Lot's men who worked for him escapes, uh, and he's able to run to Abram, and he tells Abram what's going on. And I think it's interesting that though Lot had moved away from Abram, his people knew that, Lot, uh, uh, that Abram uh, would still care. And I think that's part of the reason they ran to him. They knew that Uncle Abram would still care about Lot and care about them. His heart would not have grown cold to them, but he would care about their situation. He'd want to do something about it. They knew he loved them. They had seen that. They'd experienced it. And so they ran to him. They also knew that he'd become a powerful leader in the region. His wealth had grown. Uh, the people under his care had grown. His tribe had grown. And they, they must also have known that he might have the power to do something about this situation, moving 
to help. It's kind of interesting. Maybe you've experienced this in your life. I know I have. People that I have worked with or known that know I'm a Christian and I'm pretty sincere and serious about it. It's a big part of my life. It might give me a little bit of a hard time sometimes about it. Tease me a little bit. You know, drink a little too much of the Jesus juice. You know, whatever they say, right? Those little, those little comments. But I've also had those same people when they're facing difficulty, when they're under a problem, come to me and say, hey, uh, can I get some counsel? What should I do here? And listen, I think that's great. I can handle the, the kidding and the joking. But, but here's the deal. They know a couple things. Because I love Jesus and follow him, I might have some spiritual advice to a difficult situation. And they also know that I care about him because I'm called and compelled to love the people around me, right, by following Jesus. And so uh, this is kind of what happens here. I mean, Lot gets himself in a difficult situation. And Abram could have said, listen, buddy, you made your bed, now lie in it. Yeah. You're dead to me. <laughs> you moved away. You're on your own. But he didn't do that. We're going to see that Abram didn't respond that way. And I just want to encourage us that though we have people around us that make those same kinds of decisions, that move in that same direction, and we watch them, and we love them, and we try to stop them, and we might even really try to compel them not to go that direction, one of the things we must not do is grow hard-hearted towards them. we got to protect our hearts uh, and that we continue to love for and care about the people around us, even the ones who are moving in directions that we see as uh, damaging and destructive. And that, that they're going to end up in a, in a place where they're, they're going to be hurt by their decisions. I mean, Jesus, I want to remind you, stated, stayed soft-hearted to the people that he came to serve and to save. Even the ones who had driven nails through his wrists and his feet and hung him on a cross. As he hung on the cross, you know you've probably heard that it's suffocation that kills a person through uh, the torture of being crucified. Jesus is he's suffocating a long, painful process of dying. And yet at that time, as he's hanging there, he says the famous words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. His heart didn't grow cold and, and hard towards the people, even those that were crucifying him. Guys, we have to walk with that same uh, posture through life. We can get frustrated as we watch our country move in directions that we go, listen, that's the wrong way. That's away from what God wants. It's not going to work. And we can get frustrated, even angry about it at times. But we got to be careful that we stay in a, in, a, in a posture of love, in a posture of care and concern, so that when things don't work, we're ready and able to step out and to help and to go to the rescue. Listen, I just uh, met with someone this week, works with adolescents, and she was sharing something on her heart that is a movement that she's seeing. And I mean, she teared up out of just a, a, a brokenheartedness for young people today. And, and uh, Mary was a mom baby nurse in Denver. She saw this, but it's this issue of gender identification, right? And there are children born in hospitals today where the parents do not want to assign a gender to their baby. Leave it open because they're going to decide what gender they are. Now listen, this can seem very compassionate, can seem very heartfelt. Well, we're just trying to allow kids to be who they really are because, you know, there's some kids born and they're really not who uh, they're born biologically. It's really not who they are. Listen, uh, to read the scripture and to understand the, the truth of God is to see in the beginning that God created them male and female. That's how God created us. That's the truth, okay? 
And so this teaching and this guidance, though it may be heartfelt, maybe from a desire to help, is, is leading to a place of hurt and pain and destruction. It's not leading to a good place. But guys, we watch these things in our world. This isn't anything new. It's not, it may be a new thing, but it's, it's the same old pattern of sin brings about pain and suffering. And we watch it around, and we've all lived and, and suffered the effects of sin. Even Jesus, though he didn't sin, he saw the effects of sin hurting the people that he loved. And so we're called, guys, no matter what we think about these things, no matter how frustrated we might get or, man, anger even, we've got to remain soft in our hearts towards the people in the world around us so we can help because we're going to be called to go to the rescue just like Abram is. His nephew got himself in trouble. He walked himself into that position. And yet, when he finds out about it, he does something. He responds. Listen, if you recognize the world around you is lost and that they don't really know the truth and they're walking in a fog in the darkness and you recognize what it means to be lost or to have someone you love get lost, you know how that pulls at your heart. It moves your emotions to do something about it. Um, our family uh, lived in uh, Atlanta, Georgia um, years ago, back in the 2000s, and we lived down there, and we had some friends from McCook, Nebraska, who we knew very well, c- uh, come close to us. They were going to be in the area. They were going to be in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and so we wanted to get together with them, so we uh, planned a visit. We met up at a children's museum in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and uh, our kids um, were younger then. Our youngest, I think, was uh, maybe 18 months, um, but, uh, but we're in the museum, and, and two families, and we're, um, we're talking and catching up, and, and at one point, I was charged with the responsibility to watch our youngest child, Annie, and uh, she was just, you know, crawling around and walking a little bit, but uh, she was there with me. We were kind of in the lobby area and talking. I was talking to my friend, catching up, and I had her. I knew where she was at in the corner of my eye, and, uh, and we're talking, 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 and all of a sudden, uh, it, it hit me that uh, she wasn't in the corner of my eye anymore. Now, I know none of you have ever done anything like this. You're, you're really good parents. You're not delinquent parents like your pastor. But I uh, realized I didn't know where my child was, and I looked around quickly in panic, and, and she was nowhere to be found. And so uh, this causes your blood pressure to rise, right? And, uh, and not just because um, my wife's going to kill me, but because my child's lost, okay? And so we, we care about our, and so I'm panicked, and we're trying to figure out. Now, fortunately, she had just climbed up these stairs, and she was on the second level, and some kind person was holding her, looking for the delinquent parents that had lost her, you know. <clears throat> and so it ended, okay. But if you know what it's like to have someone you love lost, listen, this is how we're called to view the world around us. With that same concern, with that draw, they're in trouble. Yeah, maybe they got themselves in trouble. Maybe their choices led them down a bad path, but I got to do something about it. And so Abram hears of Lot's trouble, and he's moved to act because Abram loves Lot. And so Abram moves. He comes to the rescue. Verse 14 of uh, chapter 14 of Genesis. Let's continue reading. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued Kedorlamer's army until he caught up with them at Dan. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Kedorlamer's army fled, but Abram chased them as, as far as, as Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women 
and the other captives. Abram's moved to action. He cares. He has a heart for Lot. And so he goes after him. Uh, he, he, um, he takes action. And the truth is that that's what we're called to do. We live in a world where people are in trouble, and we watch it all the time. But guys, we're moved to act. We're called to act. Can I just tell you a reminder that love that's talked about in the Bible, love is our motivator. It's the reason that we do what we do. God was compelled out of love to come to us uh, and save us. Love is talked about in the Bible primarily as God loves is a word called, uh, called agape. It's the Greek word for love. And it, I just want to remind us that it's not primarily a, a love that's tied to emotion or feeling. In fact, as it's talked about and described and defined in the Bible, it's almost exclusively oriented around action. Action. Love is action. So I don't have to have warm, fuzzy feelings to all the people around me in the world. That's not what I'm called to do, though I think I'll probably grow in that. But I'm called to act in a way that shows that I love them. I'm called to move to save. Lot was in trouble. Abram knew it was going to cost him to go after him. This was not going to be something that might be maybe even cost of life, right? But Abram was moved. He had to act. He, I'm sure he wasn't filled with warm, fuzzy feelings about going to war and about rescuing his nephew. But he did it. He was moved by love. Things to consider when you're deciding whether you're called to go to the rescue in a situation. First of all, is a person's life at risk? Um, if it was just Lot's possessions that had been stolen, I don't know that Abram would have gone after him. But Lot was in trouble. People were in trouble. We live in a world where the people that we know, that we rub shoulders with, if they don't know Jesus, if they haven't put their trust in him, they're headed to eternity in hell separated from him. That's a fact. That's the truth. That's what the scriptures teach. So there are lives at risk around us. Second thing to consider is, do you have the resources to perform the rescue? Abram had built up uh, an army of 318 trained fighting men. He was prepared for battle. He had to be. And to be a king in this region at this time meant to be prepared for war. And so, but he had amassed a, a force that was large enough that he thought he could do something about this. We're not, tell, or we're not told how large the opposing force was. There's no other numbers given. But he had the resources to go after a lot and to do something about this. And uh, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about in our church at Mitchell Breen is our passion, our commitment, our mission to raise up disciples, to be a disciple-making church. And a disciple-making church means that we're filled with people that realize the call of God on their life to grow and to engage the mission of God. And so we're moving through these chairs, as we call them, four chairs. And the second chair is to be a follower. And that's the, that's the chair in which I'm growing and I'm learning. And I'm, being, I'm, I'm growing in sanctification. My life is changing. I'm becoming obedient to the teachings of Jesus, the call of the scriptures, so that I'm set apart and I'm different. I'm being prepared to be a rescuer. Chair three is where I get involved in serving and working in the church. So I learned to love others and to give and to have a heart of service. Everything's not about me, and I learn to do that as I move into chair three, and then I become a part of the harvest where I'm sharing the gospel with the world around me, with people that don't know him. And then chair four is where I become a disciple maker. I'm able to uh, teach someone else to reproduce themselves and to make disciples of someone else. We've got to be growing to have the resources to be rescuers, to go after the world around us and to help save them or see them saved. We're just a conduit, man. 
We just share the gospel. We just, we just show them what the scriptures say so they can understand the truth of where they're at and what they need to do. But God will use us, but we've got to be growing in this. Do you have the resources to perform a rescue? Third thing is, do you have a good plan for the rescue? Abram came up at night. He had a plan, okay? We're not told if it's a larger force. Probably wasn't. It was probably a smaller force. But he had a couple things. He had God on his side. He cared about Lot. His nephew had been taken, and he had a plan. And so he attacked at night, and he did it in a way with a strategy that allowed him to win. Listen, uh, as followers of Jesus, we live in a world where we have an enemy who wants to stop us from reaching the people around us. And he has good tactics. He's very smart at pulling people in his direction. Yes, we have an uphill battle. It's a difficult battle to engage. We might have and feel like we have the smaller force. But listen, we've got to develop a strategy and an attitude that says, listen, we care more than he does. We care about the people around us more than the enemy does. He's just trying to get them out of God's hands. We actually love, we're concerned, we're drawn to do something about it. And listen, when you care about somebody, there is nothing more powerful than that. And they know it whether they respond to you or not. Do we have a plan to win? We're called to win. We're called to to gain the victory. And God hasn't put us in this region just to, to, to try. He's put us here to win, to make a difference, to pull people out of hell. I used to have a good friend. I talked to him all the time. Have you pulled more people out of hell this week? You know? How about you? Have you shared the gospel? Are you engaging uh, the world around you with your faith? Do you have a plan to win? Might take a little bit of work. You might have to get into the discipleship core class and start to grow in your understanding of how this works and build your your skills and abilities and your your, uh, confidence. But guys, we're called into this mission. We're called to engage it. We're called to be rescuers. If we don't move to rescue, it may not happen. You have the tools, you have the resources that Jesus had at his disposal when he came here, when he did his work, okay? He had the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. So are you if you've trusted Christ. You have the power of God in your life, (laughs) okay? He had had prayer to the Father. He had a direct line to God the Father. Do you know that we talk, our prayers are carried, right? We pray through Jesus. We have access to the Father because of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a part of carrying our prayers uh, to God. But Jesus sits in the throne room of God at the right hand of the Father. And we have access to him. If you don't know your marching orders, if you're not staying on point with your mission, then are you talking to the Father enough? Are you spending enough time engaged in that relationship, making sure that you understand what you're supposed to do today, asking him to direct your day and send you on mission, bring people across your path that you can reach. And we need to move in that direction. And he had uh, the scriptures. He knew the scriptures. He had had much of the Old Testament memorized. Like Jesus was in the word. And we have that same, God's protected the word of God for us. 2,000 years, it's been passed down. It is reliable It's trustworthy. It's true. We can read it with confidence. We have the word of God at our disposal. And lastly, he had key relationships that he depended on. He had people around him doing ministry with him. We need to build those same things into our lives. With those same resources, we can accomplish the mission that God's called us to. Will you be a rescuer? Will you take up the cause and the call? God, thank you for your calling on our life and you 
want to see us engage your mission. You want to see us move to reach the people around us. You want our hearts to be uh, uh, broken for the people around us that don't know you. God, I pray that you would just give us your vision for what you want to do through us. Father, so many of us just under, we have a low vision and we misunderstand what you want to do in and through us. We don't believe that we can reach the people around us. We just kind of constantly say, no, I could never do that. God, you can never use me that way. Uh, you don't understand. I, I really could never do that. And yet, God, you believe in us and you, you believe that we can. And so I pray that you would help us to gain your vision, your idea of who we are, so that we could step into obedience to accomplish this mission. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.